Welcome to the Naked Truth Podcast, where we interview mental health practitioners, you know, people related to the mental health field, spiritual practitioners, really anyone. I think right now we're really narrowing it down to really cool people who help with um, self-improvement, you know. Ghost hunters. Anything. Psychics. Everything. Everything. Everything to do with self-improvement at this point. So, Alicia, how are you doing? (laughs) I'm doing awesome. I just learned... From a nerd in this office that I do 200 spits every 10 seconds and someone has to edit it out from the podcast. I mean, really, the plugin does it for me, but I do have to spend time listening to spit sounds. Nerd! (laughs) I have to do it for myself, too. Well, listen, as long as I'm not spitting across the room and it's not hitting your face, I think I'm good. you're good, good too and honestly it's it's more so clicks but okay we're gonna go back to bill gladwell yes tell he's, me about him he's awesome and so we're gonna interview him he will talk about hypnosis influence and he's also a persuasion expert mm-hmm. and i met him initially many 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 years ago when i signed up for a sleepwalkers international meeting for people who are interested in hypnosis why is it called Sleepwalkers International? Well, I think because long, long, long time ago, not even like in my lifetime, but I think people used to think of hypnosis as people being asleep and doing random things while they're asleep. So I think oh, yeah. initially uh, people were called like they were sleepwalking. So I think that's why that was called that. Hmm. But uh, but Bill was uh, one of the members or maybe he was running the group. I can't remember. So yes, so so Bill Gladwell, it's a cool name because it sounds like he changed it to make it easy for people to remember. Yeah, it's a very like star, yeah. like a celebrity type name. Exactly. But no, that's his real name, he told me. Yeah. So he just he he will tell us his story, but basically he is a an expert in hypnosis, neurolinguistic programming, affirmations, how to create success in your life. And that's what he does. He's uh, he's creating success in his life. He has this great website called Hypnosis for Humans, and you can read more about him on there. He also has some products that he sells, uh, such as uh, hypnosis, audio programs, training programs, and other things on there, and some DVDs as well. So... You can learn a lot from him, and I'm just looking forward to interviewing him and talking more. Remember, he also talks about imposter syndrome. Right, imposter syndrome. That was a really, it was really awesome hearing him talk about that. And then the other thing that really stuck with me, I love the way he reframes things. You know, we talked about how your alarm clock sound, whenever you hear it, you might think, you might associate your alarm clock sound with getting up and hate it, thinking about how much you hate your job. Then when you change that sound, you can, it's almost like you can program it. At least this is how I interpreted it. Like you can program things to encourage you to do something different. We are both looking forward to interviewing Bill and learning more about neurolinguistics, hypnosis, and let's have fun. Yeah. How to improve your life, change your brain. Love it.
So, Bill, welcome to our Naked Truth podcast, where we sit naked around a round table and we (laughs) talk about persuasion of humans, right? That's what you're an expert on. That's right. Yes. So please introduce yourself and tell us about all your wonder. We were trying to review your wonderful accomplishments on the website, and I would never do it justice. So tell us more. Tell us <laughs> why the folks from that listen to us, why should they listen to the, uh, to the podcast today? It was a complete accident on how I got into this career. Mm-hmm. And I say that because I graduated high school in the late 80s, 89. And uh, a friend of the family from uh, Key West, Florida, actually sent me a ticket to a Tony Robbins seminar along with airfare. And I was only 17 years old at the time, uh, but my parents let me go. So I flew out to uh, Anaheim and spent a weekend out there from Friday through uh, Monday. And I'm sure you know who Tony Robbins is. Is that that right? Yeah. (laughs) And I got there and there was 2,600 people in the room and all of us had name tags on and they had our names and the city and the state that we were from and sometime during the first evening on the friday it was the firewalk weekend is what it was so you got to walk on hot coals with tony robbins and stuff and i passed a guy in the room and his name tag had lima ohio because that's where i'm from and so I stopped him. I said, hey, I'm from here, too. And I held up my name tag. And so we hung out for the rest of the evening. He was older than me. I was like, again, I was 17 and he was probably in his 30s. I turned 18 when I was there. Um, so my birthday happened during the seminar. And uh, so we hung out together and we kind of hit it off. And uh, the next day, which was Saturday, he said, hey, do you want to you want to go with me to eat tonight? I'm going out to eat with Tony Robbins and his wife. And uh, I said, well, yeah, which at the time I didn't even know who Tony was because all I knew was he was in the middle of the night doing infomercials is all I knew. And so we went to dinner with him. And I, and before we did that, I asked him, I said, how, how do you know Tony? And he said, well, his wife used to be my fiance, but we went to a seminar of his in Detroit and she left me for him. And they happened to remain friends. So that's how he knew it who knew the two and so we had dinner that night and we had breakfast the next morning with them and uh so that that's how i got into this i got really into just helping people i was going to college at the time uh and leaving for college for to be an attorney i had two a double major i was going to be an attorney and a piano uh, major so because i played piano for 21 years or took lessons for 21 years so uh i obviously i didn't do that uh didn't never i still play the piano but i never became an attorney but you persuade people so still a part of you is doing a little bit of that attorney work yeah so you know i I, the thing that happened at the tony robbins seminar that most that changed my life the most was that i met a lot of the people that were support people for tony and a lot of them were uh, in the field of hypnosis and neurolinguistic programming, uh, because it, what Tony teaches is that uh, is hypnosis and neurolinguistic programming, or what he does to people or helps people. That's the modality he uses. Would you mind explaining to folks what neurolinguistic programming is? Because I think a lot of people, the term is not used as frequently, I think, as it was. So a lot of people don't know what it is. 
Yeah, it was really big in the 80s. So if they do know Tony Robbins, he uses, uh, what does he use? Uh, neural, neural Associative Conditioning, NAC. Okay. He changed the acronym and the name because Neuro Linguistic Programming, or NLP, was developed by John Grinder and Richard Bandler. And John Grinder was a professor at a college in California, and I, I think it was UCLA, but I can't, don't quote me on that. Uh, and Richard Bandler was a student. And Richard Bandler was in the computer programming, uh, I guess, department uh, as a student. And uh, but he had uh, John Grinder as a teacher. Uh, John taught linguistics and uh, he set out on this mission to see if he could take the best psychiatrists and mental health care professionals at the time and break down what they did so he could come back and teach the psychology students how to do better therapy, basically is what it was. <clears throat> and he asked Richard Bandler to help him, uh, not because he knew anything about psychology, but because he was really good at breaking down steps. He was a computer programmer. And so he took Richard Bandler with him, and what they did was went to uh, Franz Perls, um, they had uh, Milton Erickson, uh, Virginia Satir, all the, they had, they studied all of, all, a lot of people at the time. This is back in the 60s and early 80s. And when they were studying, um, Richard would break down the steps that they were doing that they didn't even know they were doing because they were, it was unconscious for them. They just did it, right? And so that's, that's what became neurolinguistic programming. Um, the, the, according to Bandler, the way that the name came about, was that he was driving home and speeding from the college one night and he got pulled over and the cop pulled him over asking if he was drinking or if he had any you know firearms in the car and uh my cat just <laughs> came into the video oh. and uh so any and um and he had some books on the floor and he had a uh, computer programming book a neurology book and a and a uh uh, see a programming book, a neurology book, and a linguistic book that from the class that he was taking. So he said, "Well, we we're doing a research project, and uh, and the, the officer asked, what is the project?" He goes, "It's neurolinguistic programming." He just took the first word off of each book that was laying on the floor, and that's how NLP got its name. <laughs> and uh, so it's nothing, nothing magical, right? <laughs> so th the problem, I, and I do use NLP and I, I, I use hypnosis because they're intertwined. Uh, and the reason they're intertwined is because of Milton Erickson, because when they studied him, Milton was a really good hypnotist. And so they really focused in on him because he was getting such, uh, so many drastic changes in people. Um, the problem I have with neurolinguistic neurolinguistic programming now is that NLP, a lot of people treat it like it's, well, cognitive behavior therapy. Uh, it's not. That's not what it is. NLP is like a toolbox. There's different techniques that you can pull, pull from it to help with any therapy that you use or any communication that you use. But the problem is with, with NLP is that a lot of people treat it as it's a therapy. And I'm a new, uh, NLP practitioner. Well, that doesn't mean anything. You can get certified as an NLP practitioner, but really what that's doing is just putting money into Richard Baylor's pocket because he certifies them um, or the uh, schools that he authorizes. That's really what it's doing. So NLP is not 
a, a modality. It's not a therapy. It's a toolbox that you can pull these different techniques from that will enhance what you're already doing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Got it. So that's how I got into it. I just got really interested into uh, helping people. That's what I started as. My my first three years in the business as a hypnotist and neurolinguistic programming practitioner was with a pulmonologist, uh, so a lung and heart doctor. And he had a sleep clinic and he noticed that his patients weren't being compliant because they wouldn't lose weight, they wouldn't stop smoking, and they wouldn't wear the CPAP machine because they had a fear of it. They didn't like, it was uncomfortable, right? Because it's a positive flow of air. So he brought me into his office. So that's what I did for the first three years uh, of my career with that was hypnotize people for the fear of the CPAP machine, losing weight and stopping smoking, uh, which I had no qualifications for at all uh, because I dropped out of school at a, at a college because uh, I didn't want to do, because I was doing too well with the hypnosis and stuff like that. So I just dropped out. And I have two degrees now. I have a degree in marketing and a, a, a separate degree in management. It has nothing to do with mental health care professionals, though. Um, and I got those two completely by accident. Because what I did was I dropped out of school. But whenever I needed some skills like accounting, I needed to do my books. Or I needed to learn how to market better. I would go and take a class. And I did, I started to do comedy hypnosis shows. So, and that's where you get people on stage and make them do really silly stuff. And Johnson and Johnson hired me to do one in Toledo, Ohio. And I did the show, I did the show. And then I had dinner with the CEOs uh, and the um, general managers afterwards. And by the time I was done eating with them, they had talked me into being a pharmaceutical rep. And because, you know, being self-employed, I didn't have any insurance or anything like that, but they gave me a, a company car. They gave me uh, insurance. They gave me an expense account and a really good salary and commission. And so I, they said, but you have to be, we, we want you in San Francisco. This was on a Saturday. We want you in San Francisco on a Monday because uh, we have our national sales meeting and we'd like you to be there if you're going to work for us. So they flew me out and I was there for a week. They flew me back. And I about died, uh, literally. Uh, on the way back on the plane, I thought I had the flu. I kept getting more and more ill. And I landed in Cincinnati, Ohio, and drove up to Lima, which was about a two-hour drive. And by the time I got to Lima, I decided just to go to the hospital. And my appendix was about ready to burst. Oh, no. So they took that out right away. Everything was fine. But the next day, because I sat in a seminar for a week, sat on a plane for five hours and then drove and then laid on the uh, operating table for my appendectomy that uh, I developed a pulmonary embolism and they gave me a 10% chance of living. Oh my gosh. Well, at least you had your insurance by then because you worked for the firm. I did. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right <in time. laughs> That's right. So uh, I, I, I got, I lived. Yes. Uh, I called my manager. I said, what do you want me to do? Because I can't go to the training that you have me at because I can't fly. I have 10% chance of survival. What do you want me to do? <laughs> That's right. And I was on blood thinner and everything else. Oh, gosh. So he said, just go out and start to meet your doctors. Tell them what happened. And then in and this was in March of whatever, 2001, something like that. Mm -hmm. And so he said, just tell them. And, and then I he said, in June, we can send you to a training. I never went to that training because... Um, I started to talk to the doctors and I had this expensive account of 700 or $7,500 a month. 
So I, I found out what the doctors liked. For example, one doctor liked to go to comedy clubs, another doctor liked Aerosmith. And I saw I took the doctor with the comedy clubs to comedy clubs uh, with the Aerosmith guy. You worked in, a, in the good days, the old good days when you guys could do anything. Yeah, it, it was. Uh -huh. Yeah, they changed it now. Yes. So when Aerosmith came to Columbus, um, I took my doctor down that liked Aerosmith and I spent the whole $7,500 getting backstage and having dinner with Aerosmith. And um, and then I had I rented out, you know, Cedar Point, right? Because you guys are in Ohio. I rented out Cedar Point for a whole day on a Sunday and uh, did a lecture for them. And then the doctors and their families could go to Cedar Point all by themselves. Oh, wow. I wish I was prescribing back then. <laughs> <laughs> you should have been because that was a that was a good old days, Long right? Time. So I was. Uh, so um, when. When I got my commission check, my, my manager said, hey, you're going to get a commission check in May. Don't expect it to be large because you haven't been out in the field selling. Mm -hmm. And um, so I said, OK, so this was like April when he told me that May rolled around and I ended up with a forty four thousand dollar commission. check. Wow. And um, I said, I think this is wrong. So I called my manager. We called the corporate office and it was right. And so the corporate office flew me out and said, what did you do? <laughs> so I never, so I was a pharmaceutical rep for a very short period of time. And then I went into training, being a sales manager yeah. or a sales trainer for mm -hmm. the, uh, for Johnson and Johnson. Mm -hmm. So that's, I, so I, I really studied up on influence and persuasion because of that. And the, the key to influence and persuasion though, it's really simple if you're persuading other people is you make them feel good and then ask them for what you want. Yes. That's, that's all it is. Like it's Lucifer on the Netflix show. What is it that you truly desire? That's right. I love that show. Yeah. It's a really good show. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that's, uh, that's how I got started in the whole sales thing. And, and it always interested me and I just kept studying on it and going to other seminars of uh, people that were putting them on. And, uh, somehow I got dubbed, uh, dubbed an expert on hypnosis influence and persuasion somehow mm -hmm. and uh now in 2008 just so everybody has the whole background on me <laughs> mm -hmm. you, yeah it's really easy to find me because in 2008 i quit johnson and johnson mm -hmm. because they gave me the option to and the option was well we have bought out other pharmaceuticals uh companies they have sales trainers that want to stay on but you have first choice but you can also re retire basically is what it was and I said, well, what's the, why would I retire? And they said, well, we'll let you keep the car. We'll give you a salary for a year. We'll let you keep your expense account for a year and your insurance for a year. And I thought, well, okay, maybe I can get my, go back and get my entertainment business going. Right. So I started to do that. And uh, in 2008 is when the economy went bad and all entertainment just ceased because I was doing corporate work and they weren't hiring people anymore to come in because they didn't have the money, like during the pandemic. And so I took a chance and moved what that's, that's when the last time we saw each other, mm -hmm. because I took a chance and moved down to uh, Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. Have you been there before? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it is a tourist attraction down there. They have mm. about 60 some theaters in the area wow. within, within like a three mile area. Dolly Parton owns most of them. And um, so we, I moved down there and I, it took me three months to find a theater, but after I found a theater, um, it took me about three more months to become the number one show out of all the shows there. That's I know. Right? So, yeah. 
And it was a complete, my whole show was based on a complete lie. And because I got there, <laughs> I did the hypnosis show. Remember, I, I was a hypnotist, or I still am. But I did the comedy stage hypnosis show. They already had one in town. They didn't want another one. And I told him, I said, I'm a hypnotist. They said, well, we don't need another hypnotist, but I needed a theater. So I said, well, that's good because I don't do that any longer. I do a mind reading show. <laughs> and they said, can you audition for us? So I made one up and they loved it. And that's what took off. And that's what I still do today. I take private clients for coaching. And um, if anybody like weight loss, stop smoking, depression, but procrastination. I had a woman that um, found me and she didn't clean the house as well as she wanted to. So I helped her with that. So nice. I, I, I get guys that need more confidence to meet women and women that need more confidence to meet men. Uh, so I help them with their confidence and, and stuff like that. So that I, it, I get the gambit of it. So now, you know, I was in Gatlinburg, Tennessee for uh, several years, Hilton Head Island for a couple of years until the hurricane wiped us off the map. Uh, Sedona, Arizona, and now I'm in Wisconsin Dells. How did you get to Wisconsin? What drew you over there? Uh, we we were. I was looking for. Was it was it in Sedona. I had a contract with Dime Resort, which was a timeshare. Uh, they sold to I believe Hilton or somebody else, and so they. I was torn around with uh, some country singers, and um, and it was me and some golf pros. And we would go to the different resorts and we would perform for them. And then they would rate us so the, they know who they wanted to keep and who didn't. The other person that was in there was Celine Dion. So nice. um, I was, I, my show was number one. Celine Dion was number two. You're a tough competition. <laughs> I know, right? Wow. Yeah, I need your help though, because here's the, my, I have a big problem and I just can't solve it myself is that I have imposter syndrome. So mm -hmm. I, I don't know why people like my show, and I don't know why people pay money to come see me. Because you're a persuasive guy. That's why. I guess so, yeah. All, although I have, you know, when it comes to me, though, I, I just don't think the show is good, but uh, everybody else just loves it. So I, well, well I there you go. <laughs> Imposter syndrome is just something we deal with as humans forever. I think everybody has a little bit of it, right? I think we all, oh my gosh, on the inside, we fear that we're just maybe not good enough or that we should be better and i think all of us have a little bit of that yeah and and what i found out that helps me is that uh it's getting older really mm -hmm. because i found out that nobody really knows what they're doing mm -mm. they're oh making stuff up yep. every day as they go along but if they look like they know what they're talking about then you tend to listen to them more yeah, that's right. Like my massage therapist, you know, that she may not know what she's doing, but as long as she's like pressing and saying, oh, you know, oh, over here, you're really <laughs> tight. Like we got to work on this area. I am more likely to go back to her, yeah. you know. <laughs> that's exactly what, that's what it is. When you begin to realize that, and you don't realize that when you're younger, mm -hmm. you, you, and, but I, I meet a lot of these people, older and younger, that I, I know they don't. Nobody knows anything. Nope. I remember being a kid and looking at adults like 18 through yes. like 25 or something and thinking, you know, oh, they're so much older, they're wiser. And then when I now that I'm in my 20s, I'm like, oh, wow, we are all just 
what are we doing? <laughs> well, and, and then eventually you start to realize, like, everybody's stupid. What happened? And then you just realize you're old. That's what happened, you know? <laughs> really is because I, uh, I'm i not going to ask you, you, you guys' age, but I, I will be turning 52 in June. You don't look 52. You're, you're keeping your, your uh, youthfulness very well. But I, if, I still feel like I'm 20 or 21. I mean, in, inside. And uh, actually, I don't even have many issues with health. So um, mentally, though, I feel like I'm 21. That's where the imposter syndrome comes from. Because, mm. and, and it's exactly what you said, because I do look younger. And when I was in my 20s and 30s, I looked like I was in my teens. So nobody really listened Took to me. Took you seriously, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, because of that, they thought I was a lot younger. Now I like looking a, a little younger uh, oh. <laughs> now that I'm in my 50s. We're opening the show in a, a temporary place. Yeah, I do a minor each show. So, for example, one of the things, one of the highlights of the show that people like the most is I ask a woman to think of her first kiss. Mm -hmm. And then without saying anything, she thinks of her kiss and I tell her where it happened, how old she was, and the name of the person that she kissed. Wow. So, yeah, so that's the kind of stuff I do. Man, that's so really cool. a fun time. What if the woman doesn't even remember? <laughs> uh, that happens a lot of times. Yeah. And I like to pick somebody that's been married. Mm -hmm. We get those in there that's been married for 40 or 50 years wow. because a lot of times the husband doesn't even know. And so it's just a not a secret, but something she just never said. So that, that's what I do. It's, it's a 90 minute to two hour show. Uh, it's not, it's not, it's not a comedy act, but it's not serious either. So it's, it, everybody has a good time. Mm -hmm. So you also have pr private clients that you work with to help um, with either like smoking, losing weight, procrastination and stuff. I do. Do you ever have clients that come to you and I'm assuming you probably ask them a lot of questions, find out more about them. Do you ever determine this isn't a good fit or how do you determine it is a good fit or is everyone a good candidate? Uh, yeah. So the way that I do things though, I, I, I promote myself as a hypnotist. That's what people hire me for. But yeah. I don't really, I, I I guess that's not the way I phrase it. I'm, I'm a coach and uh, I use hypnosis as a modality is basically what it, it, what it is. And so right. instead of being a hypnotherapist, I, I don't like calling myself a hypnotherapist. I call myself a hypnotist if anybody asks. Mm -hmm. um, so when mm -hmm. people, I screen people. So when they, contact me to uh, help them or work with them, they get a, a lot of paperwork and uh, from me before I even, they even become a client. And it's like a, a five, five to six sheets um, and ask them all about themselves and uh, why haven't you changed yet? What stopped you? Um, you know, and what, what do you, what do you want to have happen instead of what's going on now? Because, and the way that I describe this is when it comes to mental health care professionals for, for you guys um the way i describe it is that you take people from a negative and put them back to zero for the most part does that mm -hmm. make sense you get them back to normal or that's that's your goal right mm -hmm. when you really think about therapy you know a lot of therapies 
therapy focuses on what is wrong in someone's life. And they spend a large amount of time hushing out and talking about what is wrong. So, mm. so very few therapists actually will, will try to re, you know, sort of re what is the word? Um, Redirect. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> redirect them into what is positive in your life. Right. What Reframing. would you see more of, right? So, yeah. so the NLP and hypnosis focuses so largely on what is it that you want mm. and how are you going to get there? Whereas the therapy, a lot of the times, unfortunately, is still packaged as what's wrong in your life. And then a lot of patients keep focusing on what's wrong and they keep talking and this could be years so i mean like and somebody never really gets better because they just talk about what's wrong mm. that's that's how i distinguish um that's how i distinguish the coaching is the coaching mm -hmm. is from zero on mm -hmm. and and then therapy is getting you up to zero mm -hmm. and uh, taking care of your past issues and your ptsd and all that stuff is, is how i explain it it may not be totally accurate well, I, I think there's a lot of a lot of truth People to understand it, it. Mm -hmm. yeah so you're you're seeing patients that that are might be a lot more motivated or uh a lot more or at least like you said zero so ground zero kind of the normal level whereas yeah. we might see the patients that are just not there yet they still are at the face of rehashing their problems because they they can't see the brighter future yet they're still stuck in the past how would you determine someone's at zero well, when they find Bill Gladwell, that's when they are at zero trying to move on. <laughs> I, I, you know, I do explain that. I say, you know, I, I'm not a therapist. And uh, and so we're not going to talk about any issues. Um, if they say, well, I need help with depression. I never work with depression. Um, I've, <laughs> I've talked to them about it. And so we may want to get into these things um, because of the way that I use the language when it comes to that kind of stuff. But it's not that I don't work with depression. Now, in, in Wisconsin, by the way, I can do anything I want to as a hypnotist. Mm. Wisconsin has no regulations on hypnosis. Woo! And Florida did. Florida, you just couldn't, because I came from Florida. Uh, mm. Florida, you couldn't, um, you couldn't do any, anything medical. So mm. if somebody said... Can you help me with depression? I couldn't say yes. I can help you with your depression. I could say I can't help you with your depression, but I can I can help you be happier. Mm. And then everything was fine. <laughs> so it's a little okay. weird, right? It's all in the wording. So let's let's talk about depression since we got into that and stuff yes. and, and mm -hmm. those kinds of words. Because when I talked to you, you said this is for your patients. Listen to this. Mm -hmm. This is is it geared towards your patients? Well, so we have thirty five hundred people on our newsletter, uh, and so most of the people have either used services, thought about it, or you know used to be a patient. So most of, that's most of our, the people that will get the newsletter link. Then later they might access the podcast. The podcast can be found also some other ways, anyway, but I would assume yeah. most people that listen either know us somehow or have been a patient. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, when I work with people, I, I neuro-linguistic programming and hypnosis go hand in hand. So when I speak to them before an official trance state that we put them in, um, it's usually language that you'll find in neuro-linguistic programming. Mm -hmm. Um, for example, if somebody asks me or comes in and says, uh, I need you to help me with my depression because I'm depressed. So the first thing I ask is, well, how do you know? 
and and sometimes it stumps them because they just have never thought about that before. And sometimes they say, well, I don't know. I don't know how I don't, how I know it is. Sometimes they'll say, well, my doctor told me I have depression. So that's an easy answer, right? And so that's the two spectrums. So most of the time it's sometime in between. So I, 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 so I'll say, well, if you, if you don't know, I mean, you tell me you have depression, but you don't know why you have depression. What makes you think you have depression? And they'll just tell me, you know, well, I'm sad all the time and stuff. And, and they'll usually use the term like all the time where I'm always down. And I say, well, what about when you're sleeping? Are you depressed when you're sleeping? Mm-hmm. And then they'll think about it and they say, well, they'll either say, I don't know. I don't think so. Or I don't know. If they say, I don't know, I say, well, you know, you're probably not depressed if you don't know when you're sleeping. And uh, they'll say, okay, and they'll agree with that. And then I'll say, well, at some point then, that means you have to do depression. Mm. So when you wake up, you do depression somehow. Somehow you become depressed when you wake up. Mm. And they agree with that as well. And I said, well, let's pretend that you can go to any place for four weeks on a vacation, anywhere in the world. Where would that be? And they'll name someplace like Hawaii or Italy or something. I said, well, all right, well, I'm going to take your place for that time. That way nobody notices that you're gone. So teach me how to do your depression. And we'll sit there for like 15 to 20 to 30 minutes. And they'll tell me how their depression works. And Mm -hmm. I'll ask them questions about it. For example, they'll say, I'll say, are you depressed as soon as you open your eyes? And they'll say, no, no, not really. And sometimes the alarm clock, when it goes off, that causes depression. It's a trigger Mm -hmm. for them. Um, Or they say, I say, well, if, if it's, if you're late or when you're laying in bed, do you get depressed? And they said, no, 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 I feel fine in bed. Well, when, when do you start to feel depressed for the day? And a lot of people will say, well, it's when I get in the shower and start to think about work. Mm-hmm. So they have a moment that they feel they're depressed. And then I start to ask them, well, what does that mean to you? How do I have to stand? How do I have to speak? What kind of thoughts do I have to have? And what kind of feelings do I need in order to feel that same depression that you feel? And they'll begin to describe it for me. They'll give me like a a recipe, like baking a cake. They'll give me a recipe on how they do depression. And then, but what that does is it takes some of the power out of depression for them because now they've broken it down themselves and found out, oh, I do these things that make me this way. Wow. And then we begin to change those things is what, is what I do. So it's a nominalization. Are you guys familiar with nominalizations? Like making it less important or uh, insignificant? or So a nominalization is an English language term. Okay. It's a verb that has been turned in. It's, it's a verb that has been turned into an adjective. Mm-hmm. So it would be like, it would be like running, for example. Um, well, let, let me give you. A, I'm going for. Let's see. I'm I'm going for a run. Mm-hmm. If I just use run, run. Uh, actually, I'm sorry. It's not a verb. It's a noun turned into a verb. Run um, can be a verb or it can be a noun, but it can also run can also be a verb, right? So here's how you tell. If you you listen to the words that they say, and if the word can't be put into a wagon 
then it's a nominalization. Right. Okay. So for example, if I say dog, which is a noun, you can put a dog into a wagon. Got it. If I say sky, now just to make it clear, if I say skyscraper, technically you could put a skyscraper into a big enough wagon, right? It's possible <laughs> to see a envision that. Depression is a noun, mm. but you can't put it into a wagon. So it's a nominalization. So mm. what they've done in their mind, uh, the people that are depressed, is they've solidified it in their Cre- mind. Created something. Mm-hmm. One thing. They created something in their mind. Mm-hmm. And the way to get them out of it is to start to break that down mm. and um, turn it. It's almost like they have a photograph in their mind. But if you can turn it into, into a movie, it's easier to handle. Got it. And wow. starts to break it down. So that's what anomalization is. So I'm depressed or I'm scared. Uh, all those things, those, you can't put those into, mm-hmm. into a wagon. Mm-hmm. So they're anomalization. So they're, you have to break that down and get them out. So that's why I asked, well, how do you do that? If somebody says, uh, I get angry at my wife and I yell at her. And instead of saying, why do you do that? My word is always how. How do you do that? Because I want to know how they do it because I need to interrupt that at some pattern. point and okay. change, change the pattern, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's never why. I don't want to know why they do stuff. And I'll tell them that. I'm open with that. If they start to explain, well, you know, she just makes me so angry because of this. I don't, know what, I don't want to know why. Mm-hmm. I want to know how you do this because I don't care why. Mm-hmm. And um, so that, that's what I focus on. And then the hypnosis part of it is just a reinforcement of what we've talked about to help them solidify uh, everything that we've talked and that they keep the change. I'd love to go back to when you talked about the trigger, like you wake up in the morning and you're not feeling down, but then you hear your alarm and then something happens. Um, Do you ever recommend changing your alarm sound often so you don't associate it with whatever you're associating it with? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So here, yeah. Uh, this has been a while, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, every once in a while, I, I the phone, I got my phone right here, right? iPhone. Mm-hmm. So you can change the ringtones on this. Yes. And I have to change myself. I have to change the ringtone periodically because I get spam calls mm-hmm. and it just, you know, it irks me that I get these spam calls and I get conditioned to not wanting to hold the phone or not wanting to answer the phone. Yeah. So I have to change it every once in a while the ringtone. So it, it feels like a, a, it doesn't no. trigger that anymore. So yes, um, if you could change things like that on your phone, because most people use their phone for an alarm clock now, uh, yeah. um, it, it helps quite a bit. Get, get rid of the triggers. And a lot of times the things will go away. Now, for example, my wife, um, I, it's not my wife, it's my problem. But <laughs> I, when I was a child, um, so I had a, a speech impediment, and uh, which I have, I'm getting another one now. I'll tell you why. I scalped myself at a Walmart in Florida. I walked under a door that was at, partly closed. It was one of those garage door things, and it, and it had a sharp metal edge, and it like took the top oh. of my head off. This was like in 2000. It was at the beginning of the pandemic, so 2020. Goodness. And, uh, but I got a, a severe concussion from that post-concussive syndrome. So I could, I, like I was doing the show, but I couldn't remember part of the show for a while. 
And but now I've noticed the only thing that's lingering is that I forget my words sometimes now. Uh, really simple words, and I really have to think about it or come up with another word. It's irritating, and it start, it's getting better, but it's been like three years. It's getting better, but it's taken mm -hmm. a long time. Um, but when I was younger, I had a speech impediment. Nobody could understand me except for my mother and my grandmother. Um, I just slurred my words and everything, and I was in speech therapy three times a week until I was out of high school. And so I was really reclusive. Um, so I would not say things in class. I hated public speaking. Now I'm a public speaker, uh, but I, I hated all of it because people thought for the first like five years of my high, uh, elementary school, they thought my name was Barry because I went by Billy at the time and I, I didn't know how to pronounce my own name. So uh, this it wasn't. I, I was really shy. And uh, so where how did we get on this? I was telling you. <laughs> so how you sculpt your head in walmart got my head, mm -hmm. yeah so i i got that now but the whole speech impediment thing here. now we still wonder but, if you um, sued walmart because you know it was their garage door i did, <laughs> yeah, I did actually yeah and i won so yeah <laughs> so what did they say that they can't keep garage door opens now at a certain uh level or <laughs> Yeah, they have signs now. Yeah, oh, <laughs> so they, they have that. Good. They, they paid for my medical bills. Oh so, man! Um, but yeah, so I had this. Oh, my wife. So I had this. I, I was really insecure uh, as a child because of that, because I just couldn't speak to other people the way that I wanted them to, and I was really shy. I remember a friend of mine who's still my best friend from from school, from kindergarten on, and uh, he, he still calls you Barry, right? Had, I'm just joking. He does, yeah. Um, he does call me Billy, though. He's the only one in my life that he still calls me Billy. Uh, so I, um, yeah, you got me off track again. Sorry. So, but I had, I know I saw, I saw his, um, he did a speech in school and I thought, well, I'd never be able to do that. And now, you know, I professionally speak now, but uh, I had this trigger from, because my grandparents reared me and I had this trigger that I, I just wasn't good enough and uh because my parents got divorced and they left and i didn't see them like for most of my life so i lived with my grandmother right so i i have this thing that i'm, I'm just not good enough so i had this trigger with my wife though uh she, she may say something like um who did the dishes today and i'll say well like i did and she said this dish was is dirty and that would trigger me like right away like i would get angry not and sometimes I would raise my voice and, you know, you don't appreciate me and stuff like this. And then finally, after a, a, some time, like a couple of years, I finally just sat down and said, why, why is happening? Because it's not a big deal. And so I, I ther therapied myself, I guess, is, I guess mm -hmm. is the best way to put it. But I, I went through those things and, okay, so what is going on in my mind when something like that happens? What the trick, I know the trigger is I didn't do something right. Or I didn't do something good enough, right? And it, most of the time, it wasn't my fault. It was just something that had happened, like a dish didn't get clean in the dishwasher or something like that, right? But I still had that feeling, and I, I found out where it was and uh, started to fix it on myself. And every once in a while, I can feel it coming back, but I'm at the point now where when it happens, I'm aware of it. And I can get rid of it right away. So I can feel the feeling coming in. I can feel the adrenaline start to go. 
and then I stop it right away. And which is what most people have a problem doing with the fight or flight or, or freeze response, right? Because you get the amygdala uh, hijack, hijacks everything yeah. and you just go into that fight or flight mode and you can't get out of it. Right. Uh, you know, it, it takes a while to get out of it. And that's, you have to have that space between when a trigger happens or a stimulus, I guess, and the space where you can stop yourself and say, Hey, you know, I don't, I'm not doing this anymore. I was going to say, how, how do you develop kind of that muscle to interrupt that when you have like these pathways that you're always taking every day, you know, you hear the alarm and you go into that place or whatever that trigger is. How do you, cause I'm assuming it's a muscle. You have to work on it to eventually get good at interrupting it. It is. And most people won't do that. I mean, even my clients and probably your patients. Uh, because they leave and then they just go about their life and don't really work on themselves, right? So what I did, uh, I, I guess it's almost like affirmations, affirmations, mm -hmm. but it really wasn't. Every day, I had an alarm three times a day on my on my watch or or my phone, depending on what I had with me, and uh, it just reminded me to think about uh, the trigger. And I could pick anything I want, like the dish or somebody telling me I wasn't good enough at something and then stopping it. Right. Mm. And, and it, I didn't get those feelings back, but cognitively over about a month of doing this three times a day, it trained my brain. When this happens, this is when you stop instead of going further. It's almost like a, um, it would be like a, a computer program, I guess, right. uh, where you take out all the code after the initial initial code where right. the thing happens and it recognizes it, but now it doesn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it was, it, it was just me thinking about it for a long time, wow. you know, at least three to five times a day for 30 days until it, I just didn't feel that way anymore. I could stop my, I, not that I don't feel that way. I get those feelings, but I can, I'm cognitive of them and I, I say, oh, this isn't her issue or this isn't his issue. This is my issue from childhood and I'm not going to do it anymore. And I think that realization comes for anybody when they, when it's the straw that broke the camel's back, they, they hit threshold. And a lot of people never hit threshold in therapy or, or coaching because they, they don't, they don't do the things that homework that they ask you, that you ask them to do. They skip sessions and things just aren't bad enough for them to make that change. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Because, and, and I, this is a bad, a bad analogy, but I, I tell some of my clients this. I said, they, because people will say, I just can't stop doing this or I can't start doing this. I said, said, if I had a gun and I followed you around all day with the threat that I was going to pull the trigger if you didn't do this, or if you, if you did do this, would you change? And they said, yeah, they said, you can change. Mm. You don't have a big enough leverage, right? You don't have a big enough leverage right now to change. And that's the problem that most people have. They don't have enough leverage on themselves to get to that point where they just have to change. It's like, um, I'm not going to say that you guys have ever done this. <laughs> I have. Um, but you go out one evening with some friends and you drink too much of a certain alcohol <laughs> and you just can never, you can't, 
taste it or smell it or anything from now on. That's correct. <laughs> right? Yeah, never done that. Never in college one time or anything. <laughs> yeah, so that's an example. You have to get to that point where you will never do it again or you will always do it again depending on what it is. Wow. And I don't think people get to that point. Mm-hmm. They don't get to that point. Mm-hmm. They, they just How can you safely get to that point? Is it is it necessary to reach that point? That's a good question. That's a good question. I think they call it uh, falling to the bottom, like with addiction. I think if somebody hits the bottom, then they have the leverage maybe then to change because everything is so terrible. There's nothing else left that that can happen other than to get better. But if you don't reach that point, you're hovering where most people just are hovering. Then I guess they don't have that motivation really yet to change. That's why a lot of people decide to change when when they're right about to get divorced, right? Because Mm -hmm. one spouse says, if you don't stop doing it, I'm divorcing you. And then suddenly somebody has motivation to go to therapy and try to change. Mm. Or people who are about to die or have like... Um, Because I I recently have someone I know who had cancer and then got it removed. And then when she came out of the surgery and she was cancer-free, she was like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to change this. And it's just unfortunate we have to reach such serious points, you know? Mm -hmm. So here's how I work with my clients on that. Um, So I take them through an exercise, which I can send to you, actually. Actually, I can can post that so everybody can have it and they can do it themselves if they feel like they're motivated enough to do. So that's one of the things I'll, I'll put. Um, what I have them do is, is write down and then read it over and over again is how will your life be one year from now if you keep doing what you're doing right now? And then we go to three years and five years, 10 years and 20 years. And they, they write how it's going to be and who's not going to be in their life where will they or will they not be at? Um, what are they missed out on? So all these negative things. What, what do you miss out on by not changing all this stuff? And I, that's what's in there. And uh, then they they do another paper. Another They fill out another paper similar to what they just filled out. But this is one year from now, if you do make the change, what are all the good things that are going to happen? And then three years, five years, 10 years, and 20 years, right? And so if they do it right and they really associate into it, and what I mean by that is they are really emotionally attached to what they're writing down and reading, and they feel bad enough that they'll never do it again, and then they go through it again and feel really good about the direction of their life because they're going to make their changes. So, And I do that. They do that in front of me, uh, and we, we do it together. And that, that works uh, very well. And then what I do is use the hypnosis to solidify that with that. So I do, I say I'm a hypnotist, but I do, a, most of the change work is done before we actually get into the hypnosis, right? right? The hypnosis is just a, to solidify it into their mind. That's it. So they remember it. Mm. Wow. Does that, does that answer your question about how do, how do we, is that, did you say to that hit the bottom? Yeah. So, she was, she was asking, do we have to hit the bottom? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you can. Hit, so that whole process, though, only takes about 20 minutes, 20 minutes to 30 minutes okay. of doing. So that whole hitting the bottom and coming back up and feeling good about yourself because you're on a new path is only like a 20. And people will sit there as they're writing and talking to me and I'm I'm coaching them on 
on, you know, what about 10 years? Uh, they'll start to cry and they'll feel really bad, but that's what I want them to do because I know they're getting to that point. And then they'll start to smile as they're doing the other thing because wow. they know that there's a bright future ahead of them. So it's like you're simulating rock bottom. Yes, that, that that's right. Yeah. In, in a, an environment where you can control it. These mm -hmm. are some really cool ideas. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is awesome. I feel like we need to pay you for those. <laughs> <laughs> I had a client that hired me off of TikTok, actually. Wow. Um, he, the first week I was on TikTok, my wife persuaded me to get on TikTok. I said, nah, I really don't want to be on there. I'm on YouTube and stuff, but I don't want to do that. So I started putting some of my videos up. And, and the first week I got a call from a client or from a guy. He said, I own a company. He goes, I'm getting ready to sell it because I'm going to retire. And I want to make sure that the company is up to speed with all of my employees. And so I need, he goes, some of my employees are subpar, but it's not their fault. It's because I don't know how to communicate with them. Will you teach me? And uh, I said, yeah. So he said, all right. He goes, uh, where do you live? And I said, I'm in Florida at the time I was. And he, let's just meet at one of my houses. And he goes, because I have a house with every location of my business. And he had him across. I said, well, all right, where do you want to go? Mm -hmm. He goes, well, I have one in um, uh, Pennsylvania. I got one in LA. I got one in Hawaii. I got one in Nashville. And he started naming all these things off. And I said, let's just go to the Nashville house because it's a shorter flight for me, you know, because I'm in, in Florida. Yeah. So I ended up spending a whole week with him uh, in Nashville. And um, he, uh, he paid me uh, $10,000 to spend the week with him. Wow. And, uh, and to teach him how to do that. But he shared with me during that time that when he was in his early 20s, he was strung out on drugs, like horribly. And he, he just made the decision that he didn't want to be like that for the rest of his life. Right. And he went to a rehab clinic and they wouldn't take him because uh, he wasn't referred by a doctor or a oh psychiatrist. So they wouldn't take him in. So he was just a walk-in. So every day for a month, he sat in the lobby and sniffed cocaine in the lobby of this place. And finally, after a month, the doctor said, listen, okay, we're going to, we can't have you doing this, but we're going to go ahead and admit you. Oh my gosh. Wow. And uh, so he, he, that it was the, it was the straw that wrote, he found out his life was just, it, it wasn't the way that he wanted it when he turned mm -hmm. into his twenties and he just, he, he was at rock bottom and he went in and he he had the motivation to keep going back day after day for a and month. And sniffing coke for a month mm -hmm. until they finally changed the rules. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's right. crazy. So, um, but it's, it's getting people to that point. Yes. I think is what it is. People have to be at that point um, in order to make a change. Mm -hmm. And that, that point though, the point of change is, is not a, it's not like, a day or a month or a year, right. the point of change is, is instantly uh, all the other stuff is leading up to that point. But at some point, somebody's going to make a change Then, okay, enough is enough. And that's it. Mm -hmm. They don't do it anymore. And, mm -hmm. uh, and something or something was a health scare, for example. Um, you know, they, uh, my wife, for example, she uh, developed cardio, my uh, cardio, cardio, Myopathy, cardiomyopathy or something. 
something because well into the heart from the vaccine from oh, yeah. the COVID yeah. vaccine. Yeah. And she she used to be a smoker, then she went on to vaping, which we still didn't like. But then as soon as that happened, she's never smoked again. Mm-hmm. And she went off of all sugar and everything. And uh so it was just that was that was the straw. That was the point that she hit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of people don't hit that though. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh so th- so if people would want to watch one of your shows and you're starting one in Wisconsin, right? So when is the first show gonna be? First show is Memorial Day weekend. Memorial okay. Day weekend, okay. We can put yeah. that in the show notes. And, yes. <laughs> what what and it's gonna be mind reading show. It is. Very That's cool. Right. It's a fun time too. Mm-hmm. You guys will need to come over. Now you mentioned uh, that when you were growing up, your grandparents raised you, and uh, your parents, you know, sort of didn't didn't were not around. Did they ever come back into sort the of. picture? Uh, sort of. So my dad was always around, but I didn't know. So my grandparents were on my mother's side. I didn't know that they were kind of keeping me from him. I Although see. he was a good guy, they just they just didn't. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I've got a really good relationship with him now uh, mm-hmm. since I got out of the house, which was back in 1989. Uh, my mom, though, is just a nut. And uh, so she, I mean, that's not a good term, right, on this podcast. Yeah. She has some issues. How's that? Yeah. Uh, she, uh, to give you an example, she's been married about eight times. My goodness. Okay. Well, at least she's never given up, though. I mean, she says, just don't give up. Yeah, she's very determined. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she's got some anger issues. I I I, uh, I was at her house one day. This has been when I still lived in Columbus. Her computer died um, because the bat, well, the battery died. Is mm-hmm. what happened. So she and so she just picked it up and threw it across the room at the wall. So I, I was better off not living with her. So <laughs> growing up. So mm-hmm. yeah. So. Uh, but uh, so I don't have a relationship with her at all. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but my dad, dad, I stay. But it's it's interesting how you mentioned, you know, the imposter syndrome, which which exactly is kind of coming from that place of if your parents don't really show you love, then somehow that little kiddo is blaming themselves that they're mm-hmm. not good enough, right? So then. You just keep going through life and not realizing that that's still sitting in there. So it's 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 fascinating that you were able to break this down for yourself so well. And even with your wife, you know, with the dishes, you know, you're like, uh, it's coming from somewhere else. Wait a minute. Where's it coming from? And you were able to connect all of it and just just therapize yourself. It's beautiful. Hey, I don't even know if that's a word, but that's, uh, that's what I use. Mm-hmm. That word. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, well, here's the, the thing with humans in general um is that i don't think they want somebody to fix them mm-hmm. they don't even think about working on themselves a lot not some of them do but most of them i would say don't think about that and it irritates me because i'll give them we'll do a session and then i send them home with hypnosis audio programs to listen to for the next two or three weeks and then we'll see each other again and they just never got the time to listen to them and it's maddening. It's like, hello, I'm giving you all the tools. You're paying for it. You might as well do it. <laughs> if you're a client, you got to use the tools. Right. And it's not when when you're. It's not really fixing people. Nobody's actually broke, Mm-mm. right? Everybody's doing things the best way that they feel like they can do them right now. 
So you're not broke, but you may have to work on yourself and, and to become better. It's like an upgrade. <laughs> and that's right. Version 2.0, right? <laughs> and, uh, and because, um, how do I want to word this? Um, if, if you're not getting, well, it's that old, I don't even know who made the quote, but if you're not moving forward, then you're falling back. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and, but I am, I never, I, I'm an outlier probably because I never read fiction books mm-hmm. ever. I did in high school, but that was it. Everything is always a nonfiction book. And it's always like a Mark Manson or uh, Simon Sinek. Or it's always somebody that it's just a self-help. That's exactly. Give us some some books that people could like look up because they would be really awesome books that maybe helped you on your journey. Yeah. That is a really good, really good question. Mark Manson is my favorite author right now. Are you familiar with Mark Manson? No. Um, He wrote the book and it's a, he's written several books now and they're all on self-help. And he's really practical about it. His book is called, I don't even know if I can say his book on, on your podcast. It's all good. But uh, Yes, you can. It's a Naked Truth podcast and we cuss all the time. So it's all good. <laughs> um, I mean, well, the, the, his first book was um, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Oh, yes. Oh, good. Actually, I, yeah. do, I do know about That's this his book. book. Anything from Mark Manson is, is really good. And I've known of him for a really long time because... If you remember, I had the Columbus Singles Group. I think I is that how we met? I don't think you were married when I met you. No, I was married when you met me. And then years later, I think we sort of like reconnected. And that's when I was already divorced. Oh, okay. Got yeah. It. So the first time, I think the first few times when I went to Sleepwalkers International, I was married. And then later, I don't, maybe that's what it was. Maybe that was the singles group or something. Mm-hmm. It was, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so we had tons of people in there, like hundreds and um so i i I started the group by the way because i I pulled clients from it they were all single and they all needed help with something so that's where i was getting my clients that's perfect yeah so that's it people are motivated when they are single they're very motivated to change and not make the same mistakes in their next relationship and then also Mm -hmm. they yeah that's perfect well sex really motivates people yeah Mm -hmm. absolutely and so when you get divorced, a lot of men, especially though, they're not, maybe they're not fit when they're married, but then they'll get fit as soon as they start to get divorced. <laughs> uh, I'm sure women do the same thing. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. Any other authors? Mm-hmm. Oh, I, that's what I was going to say. The reason I brought up the singles group is because Mark Manson um, used to, he was a relationship coach back in the late, right by about the same time, 2006, 2007. And uh, and then he dumped that and uh, went on to just self-help, you know, mm-hmm. helping people think about things. Um, let's see. You know, I always like Dr. Wayne Dyer. Uh, he he's not even alive anymore. I don't mm-hmm. believe that he he was an author and he had he's got several books. Um, trying to think who else. Of course, Tony Robbins. Tony Robbins, yeah, uh, his books are. I mean, the book is good to read. The yeah. first one, Unlimited Power, and then he's got Awaken the Giant Within. Yeah, I read that in Polish back mm. in the day. So that was one of the first books that got me on the on the whole self help kind of kick. Yeah. yeah, yeah, 
I remember this very big, big book, and it was the Wake the Giant Within or something. Mm. Me and my mom were reading it. I must have been 15. Mm -hmm. Richard Bandler has a couple books out, too, okay. um, that you can get on the Amazon. Right on. And they're, they're geared towards the general public um, mm -hmm. for the self-help. But it's all about, I think, a change, your, change your brain or mm -hmm. something like that is the one. Okay. When has made something like that. And then, of course, Silva method. I think uh, Jose Silva or something. And there's lots of good books there. I've been hearing about that a lot yeah. recently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this. I, I wrote a book. Oh, yeah. Well, if you wrote oh, a book, we you go. tell us all about Top it. Top of the list. It, it's, a, it's called In the House of Ideas, which I wish I wouldn't have called it that, but I was, it came out, uh, came out probably about five years ago. Uh, it's on Amazon. Um, right. We need to buy it now. But it's, it's, yeah, you can buy it now um not that much but it's it's uh it's i took my notes that i learned when it came to nlp and and um language patterns and i turned them into a book so people could learn them easier than what i how i learned them that's perfect so for example um i i, I always question i like i said i use the word how so I'm always asking people how, and I question everything they have. For example, I I want um, I don't want any ambiguities in my conversation when I'm talking to a client. So give me give me a statement a client might say. Either one of you. I just don't feel like uh, being alive anymore. Life sucks. Okay, so. You use the word don't in there. So I would probably, my next answer was, because I want to tear that sentence down. Okay. Because I'm really into language. And um, what I would ask is, well, if you don't feel that way, how how are you feeling? Uh, I'm feeling down. And how do you know? What does that feel like for you? Because I don't have as much energy as I used to. And what does that mean? I mean, compared I to what you had. Isolate compared to what I had. And isolate means just you don't. I don't want to interact with people. I don't want to hang out with people. I don't want to talk to people. I just want to be by myself. Okay. And um, so I, what I'm doing is breaking down. I'm always going to be mm -hmm. asking a question of somebody. Yes. And I'm trying to break them down more and more because the more someone analyzes their feelings mm -hmm. and their behaviors, the more they become, um, they're not as magnified anymore, mm -hmm. right? Because now we're dealing with one thing. Because um, your whole sentence, what you ended up with? I want to kill myself or I'm thinking about that or something. Yeah, I don't want to be alive anymore. I don't want to be alive anymore. So we, we want to... Now we're go down to I am down. Now we're down to I isolate. Now I'm down to I don't have as much energy as I used to. I don't want to talk to people. So now it's easier to work with than someone saying the general statement, I don't mm -hmm. feel be like being alive anymore. I get it. So you're breaking it down until you get to a manageable sentence or something that they can do something about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Richard Bandler has a story too. He got a call in the middle of the night and uh, it was like two or three in the morning from a client of his saying, hey, I'm going to kill myself. Mm -hmm. And um, he said, listen, I'm sleeping. <laughs> he goes, you can, but you have to wait until morning and promise me you'll wait until morning because i want to talk to you before you do it 
And the guy promised him and met him at the office the next morning and and he talked him down. So it was. And the guy's still alive and well. (laughs) Yeah, because he he said, I knew this client. It was a it was just he was lashing out. He really didn't want to kill himself. But that Mm -hmm. that was what he was. He was trying to get attention. And he said, just promise me that you'll you'll wait until morning. Mm-hmm. And uh, he did. So, so it, I think it depends on the client. I mean, I wouldn't want to say that to anybody, but um, it's breaking it down. And I hate the phrase. I hear the phrase a lot of people say it is that uh, suicide is a temporary fixed or a, a permanent fixed to a temporary mm-hmm. temporary problem. Yeah. Permanent fix that. to a temporary right. Yeah, and and that's the last thing you want to say to somebody that's right. They can contemplate suicide, right? You don't right. want to say that. And mm-hmm. um oh, you, you mm-hmm. have to get them thinking in a different direction and so you interrupt their pattern basically. You you have you help them think in a different way. You're just such a fascinating person. We could sit here for hours I and know. keep talking. This is so uh, interesting. But it was so great to talk to you, Bill. <laughs> we are fascinated with your stories, and there's just so much we could we can learn from you, and we'll definitely get the book. We're honored that you were on our podcast, and I hope our listeners will look you up and learn from you. Thank you for being here. Yes. Thank you, and, and you can find out more about me on my website at hypnosisforhumans.com. And the reason I named it Hypnosis for Humans uh, is because... I, when, when you're a hypnotist, or if you think of a hypnotist, you think about somebody doing something to you. And the way that I approach it is that the hypnosis for humans is I want them to be, learn how to do it to themselves. Mm. So they don't need me anymore. Does that make sense? It's perfect. And this is just such awesome work. I can't imagine how many lives you've probably changed by interrupting those negative patterns and it's also really courageous people who seek out this this kind of work because I mean I was thinking about it as you were speaking imagining three times a day remembering this thing that triggers me and trying to reprogram that that takes a lot of courage it's a scary thing and I just wow I'm Uh-oh. Just, this is so interesting maybe now you need to therapize her maybe <laughs> what, what, what what's going on right I mean yeah, I, I my that. motivation was I just didn't want to be that person who got triggered like that anymore. I just because yeah. you know it really wasn't during the pandemic when I did that too, and I you were seeing all of the people getting hit and everything else mm-hmm. just because they were frustrated. And it's not going to be somebody like that. Yeah. And as I get older, though, as I get my, into my fifties, um, I seem to have mellowed out quite a bit, and uh, I look at the world differently like i if somebody else has an opinion it doesn't bother me you know at all and i've also learned here's the thing that really freed me was that i i never really i never really opened up to anybody and now i have no problem doing that um so if somebody asks me a question i'll tell them the truth uh about whatever they want to know about me and and uh it made my life a whole lot easier. Awesome. It took, a, it, took, it took away a lot of the anxiety. Naked truth, huh? That's your naked truth for today. That's what it was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because uh, hopefully this doesn't blow your minds. Uh, <laughs> some people hate me after I tell them this, but 
Um, I went to church all through all through my younger ages until I got to 30, maybe late 20s. And somehow I just became an atheist. Mm-hmm. Um, it just wasn't for me. Right. And uh, but I've never said I've never tried to convert anybody off of Christianity or whatever they might be because it's not who I am. But people would ask me or they'd say, you know, uh, prayers and stuff like this. And I would go along with it, even though I was an atheist, because I didn't want to upset anybody. And uh, one point, probably about it's not been too long ago, five or six years ago, a guy sat next to me in a car repair shop that I was waiting on my car to get repaired. And he uh, asked me, he said, have you received Jesus into your heart? is what he said. And I said, well, you know what? And this is the first time it had come out of my mouth. Uh, You know, I I used to be, I went to church and stuff. I said, but now I I just don't believe in that. I said, it's not, not me anymore. And that was the first time that I verbalized it. It was like a weight was lifted Mm -hmm. off my shoulders. And I think that a lot of people carry so much weight with them and they, they're scared of what people will think of them if they really know who they really are. But I found it it's easier if you let people know who you are and uh, people that like you will still hang out with you. Right. Yeah. And they like you for who you really are. <laughs> yeah, that's right. 